Hi, welcome to Let's Evaluate It. In this podcast, you'll hear from students at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, who are taking a class all about public health programs and evaluation. Highlighting some of the biggest issues in public health today, we're going to bring in some of the coolest people we know to talk about some of the coolest things they know. 15 students, one pandemic, and six feet apart. We're ready to learn something new. We hope you are too. So let's evaluate it. Hi, everyone. My name's Aubrey Adams. And I'm Dalia Busapa. Um, we're joined here with Brandy Christiansen. Um, exec er, he is the CEO and president of Mental Health America, uh, Wabash Valley region. Um, so thank you for joining us today, Brandy. Um, we're going to be talking about mental health program evaluation. Um, but before we get into that, we wanted to start off by sharing a fun fact about program evaluation. So according to Rose and Davidson from a chapter they wrote called An Overview of Program Evaluation, program evaluation can be traced back all the way to the 17th century, although the, the modern version of it exists in the 20th century development. Before World War I, evaluation was primarily used to assess literacy and occupational training programs as well as to reduce mortality and morbidity from infectious diseases. This doesn't sound very different from today, now does it? Then, as social science research grew, so did program evaluation practices. During World War II, program evaluation was used to monitor soldier morale and evaluate personnel policies and propaganda techniques. After World War II, there was a huge investment in federal, federal programs for housing, technological and cultural education, occupational training, family planning, health and nutrition, and community development. With that came a boom in, what was in the need for program evaluation, and by the 1960s, there were numerous books and articles out about evaluation research. The first journal dedicated to evaluation was released in 1976 by Sage Publications called Evaluation Review. Today, evaluation plays a huge role in social policy and public administration changes. So COVID-19 has put a lot of added worry and negative emotions on people, especially those who lost their jobs or, and or their loved ones due to the pandemic. According to the CDC representative panel survey that was conducted in June 2020, almost 31% of participants said they had or experienced anxiety or depressive symptoms. 27% uh, suffered from pandemic-related trauma and stressors, and almost 11% reported that they had suicidal ideations in the last month before completing the survey. The good and current news is that we're doing something about it. As we will face ongoing worries related to COVID-19, evaluations of students' mental health are going on that will inform educators, public health professionals, medical professionals, and community organizations how to support our students. These mental health assessments are being completed at, on all school-aged groups, including K-12 students all the way through higher education. At William Patterson University in New Jersey, researchers completed recently completed a mental health evaluation of college students. Researchers asked 162 students to complete a survey to evaluate the impact the pandemic has had on their mental health. The results revealed that 73.5% of participants reported difficulty focusing on academic work and 58.6% reported issues with online learning. Furthermore, 56.8% reported losing work and or hour slash wage reductions and 66.7% reported being greatly concerned with COVID-19. Academic difficulties were associated with increased levels of depression, anxiety, stress, and somatization. 
Students are worried about their health, the health of those around them, financial difficulties, and maybe struggling with the shift from in-person coursework to online co coursework. Overall, the evaluation supports the idea that COVID-19 has a significant negative impact on mental health for college students. This study was published September 30th, and it is not the only one of its kind. Similar studies are happening around the country at other universities to contribute to the mental health post-COVID-19 evaluation evidence. As more and more of these studies are published, we anticipate there will be an increase in mental health interventions designed to alleviate some of the academic and financial worries experienced by students. But now on to our, the main topic of the podcast. So as I mentioned, uh, today we're welcoming Brandy. Um, so Brandy is the president and CEO of Mental Health America, Wabash Valley Region. So, uh, she has a degree in anthropology from the University of Iowa. And prior to taking this position, um, was the executive director at Mental Health America. And then prior to taking that position, was the executive director at Bona Vista Programs. Um, Today, she's here to talk with us about her current work in Mental Health America um, and program evaluation. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. So Brandy, could you just tell us a little bit about your day-to-day -day work with Mental Health America? Sure, sure. And thanks for having me on and thanks for talking about this uh, topic. Uh, mental health, as you mentioned, is um, we call it the pandemic before the pandemic. And um, as, as you stated, uh, evidence is showing us that, you know, COVID-19 related mental health issues are actually escalating. Um, so I, as you can imagine, I'm, I'm a very uh, busy person. Our staff and volunteer base are very busy and it's, and it's heavy. Um, it's heavy for, for everybody, it's, it's heavy for us. Um, there's a lot of work to do. So uh, talking about the daily operations of uh, mental health non-for-profit, um, we're located in Tippecanoe County. Uh, as many folks are doing these days, we're doing a lot of remote work. Um, but we run and operate a 24-7 crisis line. Uh, for the for the community, but we also field calls from the National Suicide Prevention Hotline and the Veterans uh, Crisis Line. And we do serve 45 counties in the state of Indiana through that line. Um, we It is largely, uh, it's a hybrid operation. We do have paid staff, uh, but we do rely largely on volunteer um, you know, uh, labor. So we, we call them our, um, our, our headset heroes, um, because they're basically meeting, a, a, an increased demand for, uh, crisis intervention services on that line. And it's a talk and text line. Um, and, you know, as, as we'll talk about the data a little bit, uh, later in the program, you know, our, our numbers have, you know, more than doubled on that line. And, and we expect to see um, that to, to increase even more. So um, our crisis line does take a lot of time and energy. Um, you know, day to day, we, you know, uh, we, as with all the programs, you know, I'm responsible for operations, uh, although we have a great director of operations, Alana Torres, um, who oversees that that program and and then our navigator program uh which we do offer to our communities 
that we serve. We do serve seven counties, uh, including Tippecanoe uh, County, where our office, our main office is located. We also serve Carroll, Cass, or not Cass, pardon me. We serve Carroll, Clinton, White, Fountain, Benton, and Warren counties. And we are um, about to open an office in Carroll County uh, for a navigator. And so our navigators uh, are basically short-term um, case managers that assist people in getting connected to mental health providers in our communities. So we do not provide uh, mental health services per se. We're, we're not licensed clinicians, but we, um, we offer a service through the Navigator program where we connect individuals. Uh, if they need insurance, we assist them with getting insurance. We, um, we find out what they're looking for, um, what their needs are, and, uh, and we provide them options of local um, clinicians and, and cut through some of that red tape to get them into the services. There's still a 35-day on average wait for individuals, and so we created a peer support program called Let's Talk. Um, and this is not designed to replace therapy. This is intended to be a bridge during that waiting time uh, for folks who need some additional support. Um, a lot of times people, the very nature of, of mental illness is, uh, you know, going along from crisis to crisis with stabilization in between. And, you know, people will reach out for help when, they, um, when they're in a crisis. And, you know, if, if we can't capitalize on that in that moment, uh, you know, we, we may lose them until the next crisis. So just to keep them connected, uh, we follow up with them and we provide them support from someone who's been there before. So peer recovery specialists are individuals who are not clinicians, they're not degreed necessarily, but they have life experience and then um, they have a, a certification, a 40 hour certification to become uh, certified peer recovery specialists. But we, we, um, we also try to get on the front end of, of mental health. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those illnesses that there's still a lot of stigma, mystery. Um, you know, there's, there's discrimination, uh, both legislatively and, you know, um, in our culture towards people who experience mental health challenges. Um, so it's very important for us to get on the front end of that. And we uh, invest a lot of time and energy in suicide prevention, mental health education, um, programs to, to identify, you know, uh, what, what does this look like? What can some signs and symptoms of a mental health uh, disorder look like so that we can stop waiting until stage four to even start treating uh, mental illness? Because we know our, our, our jails, our hospitals, um, our streets are full of individuals who, um, who, who didn't get the help that they needed until it became a, a crisis, a stage four crisis. So when we say stage four, you know, we're talking about an interruption in education, um, homelessness, joblessness, incarceration, suicide, and overdose. Um, so we, um, 
invest a lot of time and energy in those preventative programs. Um, we also offer support groups for individuals um, who may not want to be in therapy or maybe they're in therapy and they would like some additional support. So my role is, is to make sure that, you know, administratively, you know, we have all the policies and procedures when something like COVID comes on, you know, getting the board of trustees together to ensure that we have a, a COVID response plan to keep our staff and our clients and our volunteers safe, um, but still deliver effective programs and to ensure that the, um, the grants are written and the reports are submitted and the insurance is up to date and, you know, uh, the toilet paper has been changed out. Um, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's a multifaceted position. Um, and so any day can, can look different depending on, on what the fire that day is that needs to be put out. Right, yeah. Uh, one of our, well, I guess last semester in our interventions class, Dahlia, we are uh, one of the groups that's in our cohort was heavily involved with the Let's Talk um, program. So I'm happy to hear that that's still going on and hopefully going well. Um, so you talked about some of the services you provide um, and you talked about how some of those services have to cover, you know, seven plus counties. So how does Mental Health America tackle addressing mental health over such a large area? Well, it's, it's hard, um, you know, when, when you, when you look throughout the history of, of Mental Health America, you know, looking at the origin papers uh, in the basement, you know, uh, the, the, the things that we're talking about and even the language that we're using remains the same 70 years later. Um, you know, mental health is so misunderstood. It's so uh, stigmatized. It's been equated with moral failure, um, you know, and, and when you, have a topic that's so steeped in taboo uh, such as mental health is you can't have the clarifying discussions you, you can't get um, Congress and uh, you know the, the legislative bodies to to delegate the money in, in the way that that it could be you know used uh, best you know but if you talk to the sheriff if you talk to Sheriff Goldsmith he'll tell you 95% of the individuals in his jails are, um, are suffering from mental health uh, issues, largely undiagnosed. Um, if you look at um, emergency room resources, you know, they're a, a, a huge percentage of, of the, um, you know, capital that, that is lost uh, in those services are due to, to mental health um, issues and, and a lack of places to put people. Um, so how, how do you do it? We, it, it's almost as, as if we've said, well, we just need to remain reactive with it. And I, I don't know any other um, illness where that's the case. Um, so to get in front, uh, the, the first thing that we, that we try to do is to offer the education first because we want to interrupt the cycles. We want, you know, teenagers, you know, the data shows us that, you know, the onset, the average age of onset for mental illness is 14 years old. Um, does the average 14 year old 
have the knowledge, uh, the education, you know, uh, you know, to, to be able to recognize what uh, psychosis might be. Um, anxiety. Um, does the average 14 year old, do they understand that, you know, certain people have a pleasure pathway that the fir very first time that they take a, 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 a pill or, um, or a drink, you know, it could light off those pleasure pathways and, and create, you know, a, a lifetime of, of, uh, of addiction. Um, I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think we talk about depression and anxiety. If you, if you talk to physicians, they'll tell you that mental health, um, you know, has a huge correlation with physical health, but we're not investing the uh, the energy that that we believe we need to do, and so you know we're we're restricted by staff size, we're restricted by by dollars, um, grants. It, almost almost every dollar that comes in is either through a personal contribution or largely it's it's grants, and so um, you know we have to we have to allocate. Um, and we try to do that intelligently. And so prevention for us is number one, because if we can, you know, catch a mental illness, even, you know, a, a psychosis uh, bearing illness like schizophrenia or bipolar, if we can catch it early, it's just like any other disease, uh, full recovery is possible. Um, so, so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm really driving that home because that's that's the first thing we do when we go into the other counties uh, surrounding us is let's talk about it. And then let's talk about just how we can educate regular folks um, to be able to to recognize signs and symptoms of, of suicide, suicidal thinking and and how to interrupt that with a with a basic conversation. Um, a lot of times we're just teaching empathy. Um, so, but in terms of, you know, that's on the, that's on the, um, prevention side of the spectrum and, you know, on the crisis side, you know, we have that crisis line so that, you know, uh, all the folks in our, in the counties that we serve have access to someone who's been trained in depth in suicide prevention, but also just an empathetic listening to, to be able to, you know, um, talk someone kind of out of the out of the darkness and most of us have you know a support system or or we have things that have worked for us in the past and it, it can just be really hard when you're in the throes of major depressive disorder uh to remember that uh, you know and so we train our our volunteers and staff so that when someone does call and and you know you never know, it might be the last person that they're reaching out to, um, you know, that someone is there and they're prepared and educated and, and ready to listen. And, um, you know, the Navigator program's a little bit harder, you know, uh, the, those are programs, sure, we do serve all the counties, anyone can call from the counties that we serve and access, especially now uh, with COVID, you know, moving um, more in the direction of, of teleservices, um, you know, it, it's, it's almost easier to serve all of the counties in a, in a post-COVID world just because of 
the actions that we've had to take to remove barriers and, and make things accessible in the middle of a pandemic, it just organically increases our ability to serve those counties. Um, but bricks and mortar, you know, uh, it's a big deal that we're, that we're able to open an office in Carroll County, you know, and that's through a grant. Um, so, you know, we're, we're largely dependent upon, upon the money that, that we raise and the sources of that income. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, that COVID-19 has made it, it honestly is a facilitator in some ways. And I think we'll see that in other public health areas too. Um, but who do you say, who do you think is using your services? Are there groups of people or maybe age pockets that are using it more frequently? Who do you see the most utilizing your services? Yeah, and that's a great question. And it uh, is largely dependent on, on which program we're talking about. Um, we, uh, you know, there, there is culturally more of a barrier for um, older folks. I know I've been called a boomer lately, although technically that is not true. My mom is a boomer. I'm not a boomer. Um, but just, uh, you know, I'm being, I'm being facetious, but uh, the old school sort of culture um, of reaching out for for the mental health help uh, is it's a little bit more difficult, I think, for our um, older age groups. And, you know, I'm not saying that we don't serve them and, and that we don't proactively try to serve them. I think the way that we serve them the most is just through our presentations um, and education. Uh, but when we're looking at our screening data, we can clearly see that we're serving a younger population of self-help seekers. Um, 18 to 24 is, is our largest, uh, our, our largest demographic. Um, and on the screenings, it's, it remains around 69% uh, females that are accessing and right around 30% with a one, one to 2% variation for uh, non-binary gender folk. Um, you know, but if you look at our navigator services, uh, it's not quite as, um, as gender uh, divided. Um, we, it's probably more like um, just over half, about 55% of our clients are, are female and 45 are male. Um, and on the crisis center, you're looking at about a 50-50. Um, but again, uh, our, the statistics that we have show that the 18 to, to 35 year uh, age group are the ones that are reaching out the most for help. And that just could be a cultural, uh, you know, it, uh, just a, a response to better education. Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of demographic and um, generational changes. Um, with that age group. So that also makes sense. Um, what evaluation strategies does Mental Health America use to determine the effectiveness of your programs? Yeah, and again, that's, uh, it, it, that's largely based on the program. So the education programs that we offer are, uh, are evidence-based. Um, so part of the um, 
you know, being being able to to call a program evidence based is that there's built in, um, you know, uh, evaluation processes that are uh, outside of our influence. Um, and so, for an example, if we teach uh, QPR question persuade and refute and, and refer, which is a um, like a suicide prevention one on one. Uh, you know, participants will be asked to submit an evaluation into the national database, um, and, and we wouldn't even see those. Um, and the same is with mental health first aid. Um, so, so those are submitted, you know, to the, to the third part, to the accrediting, um, you know, uh, entity. Um, for the navigator program, and this is, it's kind of it's funny. And, and it's not funny, haha, because I have to do all the reporting. But, um, you know, uh, I think, well, actually, I think I'll go to the, to the crisis center next. Um, so the crisis center is funded by um, the United Way of Greater Lafayette um, and the DMHA, the Department of Mental Health and Addictions along with uh, a couple of other grants. We get uh, some money from the West Lafayette, the city of West Lafayette. And um, so because we go through the American Association of Suicidology and the Lifeline National um, for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, we have num numerous uh, reporting agency, uh, numerous reports, numerous uh, metrics and, and key performance indicators that we're responsible for. And so, um, you know, for the crisis center, we'll look daily at our analytics just to ensure that we're answering the phones. Um, you know, how, how long is, is a typical wait time? Um, you know, what, what are, what are the abandoned, uh, caller numbers? Um, and then just to make sure that we don't have any technical issues. We also receive a report, a weekly report from Lifeline National that breaks it, it down into how many calls we've received from which phone lines, how many were answered, what's our answer rate, how many were abandoned, um, things like that. And then we have a monthly and a, and a quarterly report and an annual, which I'm working on right now, uh, report to the DMHA as our funders um, for those key performance indicators. And, um, you know, we're looking at uh, call volume, the, the same thing, the answer rates, things like that. But then we're going to get in more into the demographic information, uh, males to females, uh, to transgenders, to, to um, veteran status, to, um, you know, uh, was a suicide assessment conducted? If so, what was the outcome? Um, there, there are probably 70 uh, different categories, ages, um, main reasons for the call, all sorts of things. And then we also um, compile a report uh, annually to the United Way um, for the metrics that they've requested. And so for any program, depending on who the funder is, um, you know, the evaluation, the, the metrics and the reporting, uh, you know, is, is um, 
very, very um, detail oriented, but it's, it, it can be, um, it can be a lot. So the other piece of that is that we're relying upon volunteers to collect that data. And so we're asking, uh, you know, volunteers, we're training them, of course, and, and, you know, it's completely voluntary for callers to, um, to submit their, to, to, you know, respond to, to a, a query about their demographics. We're never going to assume, you know, that someone's a male or a female or, or what their race is. Um, so some volunteers just aren't as comfortable asking those questions and we can train them and monitor and offer feedback. But it, at the end of the day, you're, you're relying upon volunteers um, who also, you know, may have their biases and, and they um, maybe feel like data collection is over the top and interferes with the program delivery. So it's a dance. And of course, you know, we do our best to explain that um, we're in the business of suicide prevention. So the more we know, the more we can actively do something, uh, you know, collectively about it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you're relying on human beings, talking to human beings and asking them to do a very difficult job and then asking them to, you know, pry for some details for our, for our funders. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so it sounds like funding and stakeholders plays a big role in the types of evaluation strategies that you guys use. Um, but what measurements do you use to determine whether a program is worthy of continuation or not? Yeah, um, you know, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. There, it, it's very difficult to decide that a program uh, should no longer be continued. And it, it um, you know, it, in the case of MHA, you know, we have a board of trustees, we have an executive board, a, a, a sustainability committee, um, and then the board itself. And, um, you know, I think really it would come down to, um, it would come down to a, a referral or a, or a um, recommendation from the CEO. And, uh, you know, in that case, I, I would have to be looking at numbers, um, effort and, and, and revenue that, that's been invested um, compared to output. And a really good example of that um, would be like, uh, you know, our, our support groups. So, you know, pre-COVID, we maybe had a, a couple of support groups that were doing really well, but a, a lot of them were just floundering, um, you know, and, and we would discuss it on a quarterly basis. Um, you know, what, what do we do about this? Is it, is it worth it? And I, I don't want you to walk away thinking that we would just cut out a, a program. You know, there's a lot of thought that goes into it. And so, you know, in, in, in discussions with some of the committees, um, with the board of trustees, uh, it came out that one of the board members had a uh, colleague and a friend in Syracuse, New York, who belonged to a, um, a Stanford think tank. And so uh, we had discussions with them about the support groups and some of the obstacles and barriers that we were having. 
Um, and so they took it on as a project and, um, and then they'll deliver their results to us. Um, we gave them contact information for facilitators, identified what the barriers were, um, just to determine if this is uh, something that, that we need to stop expending energy on or is there some way that we can continue to provide the service in a meaningful way, um, you know, and is, it, is there still a community need? And, and we think that there is. So, um, but that would be the process. It would be a recommendation. Um, I, you know, uh, support groups are not funded by any of our funders. So, you know, that, you know, when you, when you can't really put a lot of money into something, that does play a part as well. So it would, it would come down to a, to a discussion and an analysis. Um, but we, we don't do anything rash. You know, we want to make sure that we're, um, you know, doing everything we can yeah. to the program still viable. Um, just out of curiosity, I was just thinking about um, some of the other classes that we've taken. How much do you think uh, like politics or even like maybe community needs assessments play into that? Are you guys looking at those every year to determine maybe we should be doing this or maybe we should be doing that? Um, how much political drive is in that? The community asking for one thing or? Uh, I don't know that I see a, a huge political um, effect. I do, uh, of course, we, we look at all the community needs assessments. Um, we look at all the information, when, when you, when you write a grant, when you submit a grant uh, for programming, you have to use all of the tools um, at your disposal. And so it's really cool for us that we have a lot of data. Um, you know, uh, the Navigator program is, is one of the, it's a pilot program. And so it's one of those, uh, the evaluation process actually runs through Purdue, through um, Dr. Adams uh, through the, it, we don't even see it because we want the program to become evidence-based. Um, Very cool. It is cool. Um, they did remove the funding for that program, but we're working with Dr. Adams to continue to try to get those surveys back. But the problem is when a, when a, um, a person or a family comes into our office and they're in a mental health crisis, um, you know, the evaluation is, is uh, voluntary and, and we can ask them to submit the evaluation and, and tell them, you know, this program is here for you right now because of uh, this grant um, from three different agencies that we report to. Um, but to make sure that it's here in the future, for others, we, we'd really appreciate if you'd fill out this evaluation, because if we can become evidence-based, it's, it's one more box we can tick it, um, to, to get uh, additional funding. But, but, you know, oftentimes people don't really submit those surveys. And so that's been a huge barrier for us, just the mental, just the nature of the illness um, itself. Um, and it's, I think it's, it's something we've been looking at collectively as a, as a team, you know, when, um, 
when folks do come in in a crisis, um, you know, they they currently, they, they don't ever come back. They don't want to look back. It's the worst day of their lives. They get what they need and they move on. Um, we evaluate the effectiveness of that program on whether or not they keep their appointment. Um, but in the evaluation uh, that's, you know, conducted by Purdue, um, you know, the, what we're looking at is, is uh, it's, a, it's a six month, uh, it's a two part uh, six month interval um, evaluation survey and it discusses um, contact with the law. Um, it discusses uh, emergency room visits, um, you know, uh, days taken, sick days taken off from work. So we're really looking at, at the impact of the program uh, holistically are are we able to connect people to services and keep them employed, keep them out of uh, trouble with uh, out of legal trouble, um, and and out of the emergency room departments? Um, so that's how we evaluate that program, um, and I like it because it's it's you know it gives us an avenue for future funding too. But when you look at all of the data that we get through our screenings and our crisis center and our navigator, and, and then hopefully here with the Let's Talk. Um, you know, we're looking at a bunch of information that is kind of pieces to a puzzle. And, um, you know, small staff, uh, limited resources. Um, and so we, we look to partners. Um, we have a university right here. Um, we did have a class offer to um, to look at our data collectively uh, to answer some questions. But, you know, we have this data. The uh, hospitals do the community assessments. Um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing our funders like uh, NCHS and uh, Community Foundation and United Way, I'm guessing that they all want that data too uh, for the bigger picture you know, the state, I mean, for many months, the governor was uh, receiving our call information to the crisis center um, per his request. Um, but we have to find a way to, to put it all together so that we have a roadmap so, so that we can, um, you know, address the, the mental health issues. And that's what the Navigator program is a bigger piece of. Um, but there's, you know, we're always looking at ways to, to get an even bigger picture. So, you know, we're, we're excited at the um, relationships that we're building with Purdue just in the last year. Um, and I think it's going to lead to uh, even more opportunities to be able to, you know, as an anthropologist, you know, to, to be able to, to look at the data and see what, what, the, um, what the future will hold if we do something about it and what it will hold if we don't do something about it. And that's the type of information that you can take to your legislators, um, you know, hopefully, and, uh, and, and get some, some resources and some action. Cause it's, I mean, you can throw money. I mean, we're watching it happen with the opioid crisis. You know, you can just th throw money, but if it's not organized and if it's not, data-driven, um, the taxpayers aren't really getting a lot of bang for their buck. Right, yeah. Um, so you've 
touched on a number of barriers or constraints that you guys kind of face. So, but just to be clear, primarily it's funding, it's relying on those volunteers, um, response rates, and then the fact that some of it's just national data that you guys never see, correct? Some of it, I mean, we don't see it. Uh, obviously we can see it um, in our region mm -hmm. and in our state. Um, but the, uh, the Lifeline National are the keepers of the data. And so from a national perspective, you know, it's, 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 it's what they use to get things like 988, um, you know, approved by Congress that took way too long personally, but, um, you know, uh, it's, it, they're doing things with it and we can request data. We can get data, but, you know, we're serving this region and, and we're working with partners that need to, um, you know, we just need to be better organized. The system needs to be better organized. Right now it's a competitive system. Instead of working with my brothers and sisters across the state to, um, to work together, it's, you know, we're divided by uh, scrambling and competing for the same, for the same dollars. Um, it, it's, uh, it's painful to watch. Okay. Okay, also you mentioned that uh, sometimes many funding agencies, the evaluation is sometimes voluntary. Volunteers sometimes make the data collection and this sometimes may, may cause bias. So is there any other real constraints that you face during conducting any intervention? Are you talking about on the crisis line? Any, in general, in general, like time constraints, financial constraints, environmental, any, any constraints what you face while evaluating your children? Yeah, I mean, there's only 24 hours in a day, you know, and, uh, and we're a small staff. Mm -hmm. um, and volunteers are, are volunteers, and so to ask them to you know, accept a, another two hour training, you know, it's a lot, but we have to do it. Um, there's always financial constraints when you're operating a, a non-for-profit. Um, there's no way around that. You're, you're, completely, um, you're completely dependent upon the money that you, and, and here's the caveat, uh, if I get a grant, for the crisis center, it is completely restricted to technology. Um, some staff, um, some not, and 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 certain um, elements of training. Every, almost every dollar is restricted, with the exception of um, uh, you know individual contributions. Um, so restricted dollars are. I mean, you know, money is great, but sometimes you have to um, you have to get creative on how to spend them. When what we really need is money for salaries, so that we can hire enough people to to um, to deliver the programs, so that we can then uh, you know use some higher level staff hours to be able to 
you know, uh, devote to actual analysis of the data. Um, so we have to steal those moments or we have to work um, way beyond what would be a, a healthy um, work week. Um, and that's inherent, I think, in, in most non-for-profits executive leadership. So, so yeah. So how do you overcome these constraints? If does using or, or hiring volunteers help? How, how, what strategies do you use to overcome these constraints? So we, especially during COVID, I mean, we, um, we allocated uh, funds for marketing for volunteers. I made a video uh, personally uh, for an appeal for more volunteers. Um, we, you know, but that then that puts us at you know our director of operations has to conduct more more trainings. Um, but we, uh, I basically I'm just asking for more money from more places to hire staff and, um, and, and to um, do our very best to retain the volunteers that we have. Because, you know, uh, so just in perspective, I think um, our suicide assessments have gone up. I mean, they've more than quadrupled. And so what we're seeing when we look to the case notes is that the intensity of the calls are increasing and there's more calls coming through. And so we're at risk of volunteer burnout and, we, and we've seen some of that. And so we, um, we also conducted a volunteer survey to try to get uh, our finger on the pulse as to, as to what is the, um, where are they at in terms of are they are they burning out are they experiencing mental health symptoms themselves from secondary trauma from from the stories that they're hearing and the folks that they're talking to um are they overworked are they overburdened so um and then we uh asked for permission from one of our funders to put some money into a um fund for our volunteers and staff to access mental health care. But they weren't accessing it because there's still such a stigma with mental health that even when you work or volunteer for a mental health agency, people weren't accessing the um, supports that we were providing. So we've had to go completely third party um, to eliminate ourselves as a middleman at all. And, um, you know, we, we're in the middle of that right now. Um, it's really just spending a lot of time trying to figure out what the, what the barriers that we can't even see because mm -hmm. of our own bias. It's just me thinking, hey, we're talking about it. We're, um, we're putting it out there. We're providing the supports and just not recognizing at the end of the day, we're de still dealing with it here stigma so it's um it's like um it's just a never-ending um just a sort i don't want to use the the word game but you're just always trying to to figure out why isn't this working and how can i make it work and what am i not seeing 
Okay. So now we are just going to connect mental health and the current pandemic more. So you told us about many wonderful approaches um, Mental Health America has taken, but what is, are there specific approaches that we're taking specifically for mental health during COVID? Yeah, so we, uh, we moved remotely um, and we now offer all of our services virtually. Um, so the first thing we did, uh, we revamped our website to make it super accessible and easy so people can jump on a chat to the crisis center right on the website or they can schedule an online appointment for the navigator. They can then attend that appointment via telephone uh, with Let's Talk. We try to do the same things and, and even offer uh, the virtual platform. Um, and then we moved our support groups online. Um, and we also realized that as the mental health non-for-profit in our community, we needed to support everyone. Um, and so we did, uh, we moved our brown bag series, which is a lunch hour series, uh, the second Wednesday of the month, we, mo we moved that to virtual. And we started just providing online uh, suicide prevention programs, uh, which people can still access and sign up for. Um, we, we moved everything uh, virtually so that it could be accessed. But then we also uh, did, did a lot of presentations um, and uh, we were asked to present a lot, which, which we did. Um, and we've done a lot with Purdue. Um, another thing that we did, um, we moved our Let's Talk program on campus to the found, uh, which is uh, a, it's faith-based, but they, um, but it's not required that, um, that people accessing the found, um, are, are of any faith at all. Um, they have a food pantry and they just, we felt like we would be able to provide more access to our program um, at the found. So, so yeah, we've, we've, we've done quite a few things to try to make ourselves uh, more accessible because we, we know what the mental health needs are right now, or at least we know that they've increased and, and we have a good idea based on our data and so we wanted to be able to, to provide all of our services online. And I think we, we've done a pretty good job of pivoting on that. Okay. Is, is any kind of evaluation taking place to determine uh, people's satisfaction with these new programs and online and accessing website? Um, well... I mean, in all of our programs, there are evaluations, they're self-reporting. I don't have a, um, anyone can email uh, me through the website. It's, it's a very generic uh, email, mha at mhawv.org. Um, but in terms of um, satisfaction for the website, I don't think I have anything 
like that in place. I do know that we've increased our um, Spanish speaking uh, okay. services. Um, we're using a language interpreter, which which we still have, but um, we uh, we've been hiring um, or or recruiting and hiring uh, more Spanish speaking uh, staff and volunteers as well, because we noticed that there was um, a gap there for that too. So, okay. great. Okay, the last question. Do you have any suggestions for current public health students on how to be better program evaluators? How to be better? Have, um, how do we, to become better program evaluators? What do they need? What do they have to do? How to think about, about it? How to think about the program evaluation? Do you have any suggestions, any yeah. recommendations? Yeah. Yeah, I would say, um, I don't know if, if, if you've heard the saying, uh, my grandpa used to say it, measure twice, cut once. Um, and that was for carpentry, of course. Um, a lot of times we, we know what we want the data to say. Um, and I think that's, I think that's true with, with anything, you know, we, the scientific method, I mean, we're, you know, we're no, no different than, than anybody else. We want our programs to be successful. But a lot of times the most important data is, is not what's there, it's what's not there. Um, and one thing that I've found personally is that um, there are so many things that we miss when it comes to evaluating programs. And you know, we, we want to be succinct about how we're asking because if we, you know, have long floral evaluations, um, you know, we're, we get lost in a sea of information. But I think it's important to, to look at your data sets and, you know, uh, ask someone outside, outside of that, you know, that's not really embedded in in your um in your programs ask them to look at it and then kind of always be ready and willing to to look at at, at what's not there and, and what why am i not getting the information that i need because it's usually something that's you know uh the fault of of the questionnaire or, or it's something that we're not seeing or we're not thinking. There are so many barriers and I think it, it just takes years and just commitment to, to recognize fully what the barriers are. But when you find one, it's like such a aha moment. Um, you know, it, to be really effective, you know, you really have to put your, your ego and, and even your, um, sometimes your mission aside because it can be really un unexpected. Uh, the, the, the barrier or the reason why you're not getting what you need. And I know that's kind of a roundabout way to say it, but in a lot of ways, it's just like check your biases, right? Um, 
and and I think there's kind of a dirty stain to that word right now, but um, you know, we all have the way that our brains work is completely different um, than you know on an individual basis. Just if you really want to get at something, just don't stop. Just keep looking at it. Look at the process, and and look at the trends, and you know it, and um, you know be be open to to being surprised, um, and then you know have fun because data can be fun. Yeah. Okay. This was very helpful. Thank you, Brandy very much we want to thank you for joining us today and for sharing some insightful information with everyone about mental health america and reward program evaluation we hope this gave everyone a snapshot of what mental health is like in the great Lafayette area thank you very much brandy again thank you really this was so so helpful and joyful and thank you everyone for listening to us